Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Radical can be very, it, it can still be a small thing that is still radical for you emotionally, psychologically, even physically. Um, and doing that is just plain hard because you have to get over so many psychological hurdles of expectation of what you want your life to look like, what you think other people think your life should look like. I mean, all of that plays into those decisions that you make as a child or as an adult. And they're just not easy. And nobody makes them easy for you. Again, because there's this prescription of what your life is supposed to look like. And it's supposed to have a linear upward trajectory. Once you make that decision, you move up and up and up and up and up and up and up along the same career ladder, the same family ladder, and you just take it from there. When you jump off of something like that or make a change, you start questioning your own sanity. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tess, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am so glad to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Chris Gilbo, and I know you were a speaker right. at WDS a few years back. Uh, I, I believe I was in the audience when that speech took place. And, you know, given a lot of the choices you've made and the background that you come from, I was really intrigued by everything that you're up to. So rather than give it away for our listeners, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, uh, your story, your journey, and how that has led you to all of the work that you're doing today? Wow. Um well, I'll, I'll go pretty quickly through some of the basics. Uh, I was on public radio for more than 20 years. It was my first job out of college, and I spent the vast majority of my career on the radio, uh, first as a reporter and then as uh, what we in public radio call a host, which is basically a fancy name for an anchor. Um, and I spent 11 years at a business program called Marketplace. Uh, with an audience of about $9 million a week for all of the shows that were involved at Marketplace. And for six of those years, I hosted a personal finance program. So uh, it was my dream job. This was the place that I wanted to work pretty much from the time that I started working. Um, it's a At the time I, I, uh, I first heard the show, uh, I thought, this does not sound like every other public radio show. It had a real, really unique personality. They had fun with this subject that everyone finds unbelievably boring. 
So uh, I set my goal to work there someday, and I figured, you know, it'll take 20 years, maybe it'll take 30 years. Well, I was very fortunate it took 11. Um, so 11 years into my career, I ended up as a host at Marketplace and then uh, and, and had an amazing time. I mean, I, was, I had a front row seat to extraordinary events um, from all the corporate scandals of 2001, 2002, 2003, through the housing boom, and then the bust, the financial crisis of 2008, uh, where it was, a, I mean, boy, to be a personal finance reporter and host at that point in time was, uh, as I said, quite the extraordinary experience. And part of my show was a call-in show. So every week we would hear from people saying, oh, my God, what do I do? <laughs> um but uh, in, in mid-2012, I found myself in uh, kind of a place where I wasn't sure that I was enjoying where I was anymore. I was still enjoying the work. I was not enjoying where I was working. Uh, and I don't really talk about the details of that uh, for, for reasons that are, I think, fairly obvious. Uh, I, I still love the show itself. I still love the work that I did and my former colleagues, but it just... It was feeling like it wasn't the right place to be. But I was at the top of my profession at that point. I mean, I was, I was really, there, there was only kind of one, maybe one more rung on the ladder that would get me absolutely to the top. And when you are in that place, when you look around at all the other options that are available to you, it's very hard to see one that is going to satisfy you. And so what I ended up doing without actually a lot of forethought um, if I went back and did it again, I would probably think about it a little more before I pulled the trigger. Uh, but I quit without having anything else lined up. Now, when I quit, I did give them three months notice. So it's not like I just up and quit, but I did not have another job lined up. I didn't even have any idea kind of what I wanted to do. So when I left this dream job, it wasn't for another dream. And that is not something that most people think is a normal thing to do. So I left and I, I knew that I could freelance after 20 years of, you know, being, being in a profession. Uh, so I did that for a while. And then a friend of mine uh, said, hey, I think it's really interesting what you've done here. You left at the top of your game. You left your dream job and you left for nothing. Like you, you didn't have anything. And I think it would be interesting if you gave a speech about that to an audience of 3,000 strangers in Portland, Oregon in about six months. So this was early 2013. And what I said to him was, no, that does not sound like my idea of fun, telling people that this has been unbelievably difficult, that I, ha I feel like I am, might be crazy, that I did something really stupid and I have um, just untold amounts of regret and I'm not going to get on stage and tell people that. <laughs> and he said, that's exactly why you should do it. Be honest with people. Talk about what it's been like for you to make this, this kind of radical change in your life and to live with that kind of uncertainty. And so I had six months to write this speech. And in the meantime, I was up for what would have been the second job of a lifetime, dream job of a lifetime. Um, and I ended up coming in runner-up, second place, to host a program called Weekend All Things Considered on NPR. 
And I found out that I didn't get that job one week before delivering my speech. And I had postponed writing this speech because I kept telling myself I was going to have a happy ending to all this, that I was going to be able to get up there on stage and say, yeah, you know, I quit my job and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but here, this is the reason why it all happened because I was meant to get this other job. That's even more exciting. And aren't you all now so inspired by my story? And then I didn't get the job. And so what I ended up doing was getting up on that stage and saying, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I don't know why I did this. And I feel like a failure. I feel like the biggest idiot on the planet to have left this amazing thing that I had. And I don't know who I am anymore. And my job was my identity. So I don't know how to even identify myself at a party anymore. And I feel like I'm not special anymore. Like, why would anyone want to hear from me? Why, why are you sitting there in the audience listening to me? Because I don't have this cool job anymore. But I said, you know, I'm going to try to figure this out. And I'm going to try to work through it. And we'll see what happens. And I have to have at least some sort of confidence in myself that after all this time, I've learned something. And something will come to pass. And later that night, I got an email from someone who said, hi, I'm an executive editor with Random House, and I was in the audience this morning when you gave your talk, and I think you have more to say. And 11 days later, I had a book deal with Random House. So for the next two years, I wrote my book, had my book edited and published in August of 2015. And that's been kind of my journey and it was a most extraordinary experience. I look back and I, I can't believe that that all kind of, that, that it fell into place. Although when I, self, when I say it fell into place, that's, that's not really fair to me because I worked hard for all of that. I deserved it. I worked for it. It didn't just fall into my lap. But at the same time, there was an element of, you know, okay, well, this is what's coming along. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, so the book was published and then the coda to the book, which didn't make it into the book, <laughs> I actually have, you know, an epilogue, uh, that did not make it into the book, um, because I didn't know what I wanted to do after the book. You know, I wrote a book and okay, now what? And what I decided was that I needed an even more radical change in my life. And what I ended up doing was, uh, I ended my marriage and I sold my house and I left Los Angeles after 14 years there. And I am now in Vietnam, living in Vietnam. And I am traveling throughout Southeast Asia. And I don't know from, you know, month to month where I'm going to go next. And this is my life now. I am living in this uncertain, unplanned space that... I would be terrifying were it not so utterly exhilarating. And I'm writing about it and I'm learning photography and I'm doing kind of whatever comes along. And it's so strange because my life was all planned out. Like I've always been a planner. This is not me. This is not the test you would have known three and a half years ago. Um, but so far it's working out. And when it stops working out, I'll go back. And that's, that's the Cliff's Notes version. Um, 
So what do you think? Oh, that raises so many questions. <laughs> um, <clears throat> which you're about to find out. I, I, you know, I, I drill people until we get to the core. Like, you're an onion at this point. Hey. So many layers to peel. Hey. Um, you know, right. I want to ask you about something that I ask a lot of people about, and that is childhood, growing up, uh, parents, mentors, influences, teachers. I mean, the kinds of things that ultimately led you down this path of a career in radio and, and making the decisions you did so early in your career. But when you look back at your life, are there inflection points that you could say were the things that formed who you became in your career? Yeah, you know, I when I was a kid, I was a piano player. Um, I was a classical pianist. And I was, I think most people would say I was a bit of a prodigy. Um, I loved classical music, and I started playing piano when I was five years old. And so throughout my childhood, even throughout most of high school, I thought I was going to end up going to conservatory. You know, uh, Oberlin... Maybe, I mean, I, I figured I would get into, into Juilliard. Um, but then at some point in my junior year of high school, my high school English teacher, and this, it's so funny, this is how so many journalists become journalists. The high school English teacher says, I think you might want to try writing for the newspaper. And so I started writing for the high school newspaper and just fell in love with it. Like all of a sudden I was like, this is where I belong. I get so jazzed about this. I love watching the news. I was a devotee of um, the McNeil-Lair News Hour when I was nine years old. Um, younger people in the audience will have no idea what that was, but it's the PBS News Hour now. Um, and I ended up quitting piano and deciding to go to journalism school. So I credit my English teacher, my high school English teacher, Bob Ham, with essentially setting me down the path for this career. And I ended up going to journalism school at Northwestern University in Chicago. And the summer after my freshman year, I got an internship at the local public radio station in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. And I had never heard of public radio I knew public television, but I had never listened to public radio. But my second day of my internship, they sent me down to cover a story downtown. There was a strike going on at the library. And they were short-staffed because it was the summer, and they said, go down and cover it. And I ended up doing reporting for them all summer. And I just fell in love with the radio. And it's hard to explain why. Uh, why that is? I really, I really kept telling myself that I wanted to, to do television because that was, you know, that was going to make me a celebrity. I'd always wanted to be famous, and that was going to make me a celebrity. And who doesn't want to go into television? Uh, but I ended up falling in love with radio, and even though I did try to find a job in television out of college, uh, I, again, the stars aligned, and Oregon Public Broadcasting, where I'd had my internship. Uh, had an opening six weeks after I graduated. And that's how my career started. So I went from, you know, one creative pursuit, which was music. And that was my creative pursuit throughout my childhood. I did music. I, uh, I was in the high school band. I was in the high school choir. And I was, I did theater. So, you know, I was, I was the arts department geek and a proud one at that. 
But then I turned to writing and that became my other creative outlet. And um, I didn't actually play piano again until I turned, what was it? I guess I was 36 years old when my then husband and I bought a house and my parents shipped my piano that I, that I grew up playing. They shipped it from Portland down to LA and I started taking piano lessons again. So music came back into my life. Uh, but for a long time, my creative pursuit was, was radio and it was writing and it was production and it was using sound, which I think makes sense as a musician. Uh, there are a lot of musicians in public radio. Uh, but that's, that's really, that was kind of the line that led me to the career that I had for 20 plus years. Wow. It's getting surreal. I, I was just writing in my journal this morning uh, about uh, questions that we'll never have answers to. And I got rejected by the Northwestern School of Music. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, I played the tuba for nine years. Uh, oh my goodness. And I got into the USC School of Music. I didn't go. Uh, I went to Berkeley instead. But it was just, it's just so surreal to hear you say those two things, music and Northwestern. And I'm like, wow, that's so weird. Wait, did, did you go to the Berkeley School of Music or Berkeley? No, UC Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I'm curious why you think so many people um, overlook moments like that when they fall in love with something that has the potential mm -hmm. to be a calling or a career. Because I, I feel that I get to talk to people like you who found it all day long. And I can't help but wonder why so many people missed it. Because I know that I never once saw a sign of what it could be. Or maybe I overlooked every one of them when I was as young as you were to figure that out. So I'm curious um, why you think you were self-aware enough to realize that at such a young age and why so many people miss it. Mm. Boy, that's a complex question. You know, if I think if I get into the head of my, God, what would I have been, 16-year-old self mm. at that point? I think there were two things going on. One, you know, in your teenage years, it's very hard to pursue something that is so lonely. And musicians, musicianship can be a very lonely pursuit. You know, piano lessons... Uh, e even though, I, you know, yes, I was in the school band, yes, I was in the school orchestra and the choir and everything, but the pursuit of classical piano is, is, was very lonely. Uh, it was just me at home practicing. And that got really hard, especially when you are at the point where if you're deciding that that's going to be your pursuit, that you want to pursue that as you know, what you want to do in college and what you want to do after college, you really have to spend a lot of time with your instrument, whether it's your voice or your clarinet or your, I've been watching Mozart, <laughs> Mozart in the Jungle or your, or your oboe um, or your piano. And as a teenager, that's just a really, really hard thing to do. And I, was, I started fighting against that. I started rebelling against that. And I started to ask myself, why, why am I pursuing this? Do I really, really love it? Or am I doing it because everybody says I'm really good at it? And that this is my talent. And that this is, what I have, that I, that this is my God-given talent. And therefore, it is what I must do with my life. Or do I really love it? And I started to question whether I did. I was much happier on the stage in a theater production than I was at a piano recital. So I think that played into it. 
Uh, I also didn't like my, my current teacher at the time. And I think teachers are everything in this world, but they're not all the one for you. And so that played into it as well. But I also, I do think I was aware enough to kind of look down the line and say to myself, um, you know, what, what do you want to do with a music career? Because what I knew I wanted to do if I pursued it was I wanted to be a concert pianist. I wanted to be the soloist. I did not want to be an accompanist. I did not want to, uh, I didn't want to teach. I knew that about myself. I knew that I would, would not want to teach. And then you start saying, well, how many concert pianists are there in the world? Not very many. And they are the best of the best. They are the geniuses. They are the true, like the definition of prodigies. And I think I was realistic enough to ask myself whether I would really, whether I had the potential to get to that place. And the answer that I arrived at was no, I did not have that potential. Whether I did or not, who knows? Can't, you know, we'll never know. Um, but I found such passion in writing and the news that I thought to myself, that's something I could do. And that's something I could do really well. Now, you know, as for the, and, and also part of it was I, you know, I didn't, I wanted to be a concert pianist because I didn't want to teach because I knew then I was, I wasn't going to make any money. Um, and I wasn't going to be famous. So then, of course, I went into public radio journalism <laughs> where there's so much money. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- those were all, I guess, the factors that were kind of swirling around my 16-year-old mind. Um, I think it is – I look back now and I, I, I think it is absurd that we ask kids to make those kinds of decisions when they're 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, but I did. And – it worked out well. Sometimes I've wondered uh, what it would have been like to try to pursue music, and particularly when I went back to it in my late thirties, um, I, you know, I found that I loved it again. And I actually, I gave a solo recital when I turned forty. Um, that was that was a thrill. But uh, you know, at, at this point in my life, I don't look back with a bunch of regrets. I, you know, I, I had an amazing, an amazing journalistic career. It was it was exciting. It was fun. It was so challenging intellectually. And who can ask for more? You know, uh, I got, I was very, very fortunate. I worked hard for it, but I was very fortunate. Hmm. So the other part of the question uh, was why you think people overlook these moments or miss them. Yeah, um, I think because this is so so cliche, cliche, uh, change is hard. Yeah. And it is so much easier to stick with what you know. Um, learning a new skill is incredibly hard. I just this past weekend sc- went scuba diving for the first time. And I had to get over enormous fear to do that. Not, not fear of, of water, but enor- enormous fear that I was going to like go down to the bottom of the ocean and choke. Um, so learning a new skill of any sort takes you out of what you're good at 
And for me as a 16 year old, that was, you know, leaving music to go into something that, yeah, I was a good writer, but I, who knew, who knows whether I I would be a good journalist, um, a good interviewer. Um, so I think it's just plain easier to stick with what you know. And that applies when you're a child and it, 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 it's exponentially harder when you're an adult. First of all, because you're supposed to decide when you are 18 or 21, maybe 25, what you're going to do for the rest of your life and what your career is going to look like and what success is going to look like out of that career. And that becomes defined for you. And so kind of switching out of that becomes anathema to who you're supposed to be. And that applies to having a family as well. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a person who wants a family, then that becomes what you do. And moving, and, and particularly in our society in America, and I think in a lot of Western societies, well, probably all over the world, choosing not to do that then becomes anathema to what your life is supposed to look like. Um, I'm among those who chose not to have a family. I got married, but I didn't have children. So going against any sort of grain is also a challenge. And I think that keeps people from making the kinds of radical changes that we're talking about here. And, you know, radical doesn't have to be huge and sweeping. Radical can be very, it can still be a small thing that is still radical for you emotionally, psychologically, even physically. Um, and doing that is just plain hard because you have to get over so many psychological hurdles of expectation of what you want your life to look like, what you think other people think your life should look like. I mean, all of that plays into those decisions that you make as a child or as an adult. And they're just not easy. And nobody makes them easy for you. Again, because there's this prescription of what your life is supposed to look like. And it's supposed to have a linear upward trajectory. Once you make that decision, you move up and up and up and up and up and up and up along the same career ladder, the same family ladder, and you just take it from there. When you jump off of something like that or make a change, you start questioning your own sanity. And nobody wants to do that. So sticking with what you know, sticking with what is comfortable, sticking with certainty is always, always the safer thing to do. Taking a risk is never, never easy. It's one of the hardest things you can ever do, but it can also be one of the most rewarding. Hmm. Did I answer your question? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so this raises a question uh, that came to my mind as you were talking about all of that, uh, based on a conversation I had with Donald Miller, who I, I'm pretty sure you're probably familiar with, because he might have been a sure. speaker at WDS that year. And he and I were talking uh, on the podcast about this notion of being born with something special or the sense that you're put here to do something special. 
Um, mm. And he referenced a conversation that he had with Pete Carroll. He said, you know, nobody answers that question with yes when you ask, did you think you were, you know, special? And <laughs> Pete Carroll apparently said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. And he said, you know, he's the most humble guy on earth. But he said, you know, you know, does everybody have this? And Pete Carroll said, no, look around. And, you know, that's such a, a disheartening answer. But I, I have to ask you that question. You know, does everybody <laughs> have this special thing in their life, this thing that is a, a calling that, you know, enables them to potentially rise to the heights that you did in your career? Um, I, have, I have to say no, too. But I would add, why do we all have to be special? Yeah. Why do we all have to have a freaking calling? You know, not everybody is made for that. Not everybody wants that. And I'll tell you, I had it. And I had it for a good, well, God, if you tack on piano to my, to my radio career, I had two different things for 40 years. It's basically, you know, the first five years of my life, I didn't have it because I was a real baby. Um, Okay, maybe 35 years because the last, the last five years have been transitional for me, or at least the last three. Um, so, no, everybody doesn't have a calling. But why should they? Why should they feel pressured to? Why should they feel like they have to? Um, now, that doesn't mean that you don't want to find something that fulfills you and that adds something to the world. But A, not everyone is privileged enough to be able to pursue what they feel is a calling. And B, not everyone wants to. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a life where you are simply doing what brings you pleasure, what brings you some amount of joy on a daily basis, hopefully. So many people don't even have that. But no, you don't have to, you don't have, to have it a calling in your life. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to, you don't have to want to be famous. Um, in America, you're supposed to want to be famous. You're supposed to want to reach, you know, to the highest highs of whatever is available to you. Um, I think that's bullshit. I don't think that everyone should have to want that. Um, some people are perfectly happy with the life that they have, with the family that they have, with, you know, going to work and coming home and doing it again the next day and having a weekend. And if that's your thing, if that's your jam, good on you. And no one should judge you if you don't want something that you're pursuing as, you know, some grand passion. Um, I know that I'm not supposed to say that because <laughs> in this world of, follow your passion at all times and the riches will come and you know oh quit your job and follow what you want to do and it's all going to work out for you and everybody can be the best at what they do no you can't you know <laughs> there aren't enough ways to do that and i i i think that that sort of mentality is setting people up to feel like failures when they have perfectly wonderful lives, or maybe they don't, but you know, if you want to pursue that, that kind of, I don't even want to say excellence because then that says that if you don't pursue it, you're not excellent. <laughs> you know, you get, you get trapped in that, that circular logic. That's just, ah, oh, drives me crazy. Um, but you know, if you want to pursue that, great, 
go for it. Be your best person you can possibly be. Go try to be famous. Go try to tell everyone that they can be too. <laughs> but if you don't, if you don't want to do that, give yourself a freaking break and don't. Just, you know, you have one life to live. Live it the way you want to live it. And that's the best you can do. And why would anyone judge you for anything outside of that? I, that's I really, how I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, because, you know, we write our books, uh, we produce our shows, we put our work out into the world. And, and like you said, we, we perpetuate that mantra to a fault. Yep. Yep. And I, and I don't think it's fair. And I don't think it's realistic. And I don't think that every society <laughs> puts that kind of pressure on people. You know, the, the, whole, the whole notion of the American dream mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, anyone can pull them up themselves up by their bootstraps and make it to the top. Well, first of all, that's – sorry, I keep – I can swear on a podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> um, that, that's bullshit too because there are plenty of there, – there are huge pockets of this country – uh, where, you, you know, no, they don't have the resources to even pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And telling them that they should be able to is so unfair. It is so unfair. Um, but even if you do have the resources to, you know, there's this idea that you should be pursuing something grand in your life just because you've been given life. Well, first of all, you didn't have a choice in, being, in it being given to you. And second of all, stop with the pressure already. Why, why, why do we have to have grandiose ideas about what life is supposed to be and what success looks like? You know, that's, that shouldn't be prescribed for us. Mm. And that's something that I've really had to, that I've really had to deal with over the last three years because my own definition of success was getting to the top of my profession and, and having an element of fame. Now, a lot of people don't know, don't have any idea who the hell I am. And they're like, <laughs> why are you talking to me? Um, but within my, within my you know, little niche of public radio, I was well known. And a lot of people across the country know me just by my voice. I've been recognized in elevators just by people hearing me talk. So, you know, yeah, I had the element of fame. I was fairly well compensated. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I had, I reached, the, I reached, uh, close to a pinnacle. I keep saying close because I think had I actually reached the pinnacle, I wouldn't have left. Um, but you know, that's not for everybody and there aren't enough slots in the world for, for everyone to get there. So the idea that your notion of success has to be tied to that is, that's just, that's not cool. You shouldn't lay that on anybody. Um, And, you know, I know a lot of people, people close to me, who are in careers where, for example, the only way that they can get more money is to rise within their organization and go from being, you know, like an implementer to some sort of manager or salesperson. And they don't want to do that. They just don't want, they, they, they don't want to be a salesperson. They're not good at sales. But it's the only way that they've been told that they can be, you know, a further success in their careers. Why do we do that to people? Why take someone out of something that they're really good at and that they're enjoying and that they're making money for you 
And yet we place this pressure on people to keep rising. And yes, you don't want to be stagnant. You don't want to be just sitting there and never learning anything from day to day. You want to be intellectually challenged. But that doesn't mean that you should have to change what you love and what turns you on in order to be deemed a success in what you're doing. Um, so I, you know, I guess that's a roundabout way of saying, I think that our, our whole system is screwed, um, in the way that we define success and how you can, how you can get more money, get a better title, that sort of thing. Um, but that's a whole nother discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We could do an hour on just that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, but I do think that our our notions of what ambition is supposed to look like are really, really, really screwed up. Mm. And I wish they would change. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, that makes a rather paradoxical transition to uh, what I want to ask you about next. Uh, I get the sense that a good amount of your life and your career has centered around this concept of mastery of a craft. Um, and I get that sense from almost everybody that I talk to that comes from the creative fields who've been at what they are at, what they do for a very long time. And, you know, I mean, having worked with the people you did over the years that you worked in public radio, being up close and personal to probably people who we consider sort of iconic figures in our culture. Uh, sure. I'm curious, you know, in your own experience, what you've learned about mastery of a craft and how that has applied throughout your life. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny when, when I, when I look back on 20 years in public radio, I don't think I really thought of it as a craft until the, the last, like the last half of it. Uh, it was, it was a job. It was a cool job. It was an exciting job. You know, I covered incredible stories. Um, I covered Tanya Harding. She made my career. Uh, you know, I, I covered mob trials in Boston. I got to go places and do things that nobody else gets to do. Talk to people that nobody else gets to talk to. Um, so for me, it was more, oh, isn't this just a, just a cool job? And I think that's because at the time I was still learning what I ultimately came to know as a craft of radio. And then, you know, in the, in the back half, on the back nine, I started to realize that this was a creative craft that I was doing, um, that writing was a part of it, that gathering tape was a part of it, that interviewing was a part of it, and that production was a part of it. And then, you know, being on air was a huge part of it. No, that was a performance, uh, harkening back to my thespian days on the stage, so once I thought of all those things together and being able to combine all of them, that is a craft and that's a very special thing and that's not something that everybody can do. So when you realize that not everybody can do what you do, that's when you start thinking about it as, um, as something special, as something that is more of a career um, but, but it goes even beyond career and I, I don't know how you describe something that's, that's beyond career. It's beyond vocation. It's beyond, I, I mean, I, I, it's so hackneyed, but I guess it's a passion. Um, and you become so good at something that you fall in love with it. And so then when you reach a certain point in that career, you find yourself surrounded by a lot of other people who feel the same way about what you're doing and are, if not as good, are certainly working hard to get there. Um, and I worked with a lot of young people in our shop uh, who that's what they were striving for. That's what they wanted to do. 
and being surrounded by really smart people, people who are dedicated to what they're doing, people who really believe in what they're doing. And, you know, journalism is, it's not mission driven in the corporate sense of the word, but it is mission driven in that all you really care about is making sure that people are informed. Your job is to make sure that people know what the hell is going on in the world. And that's, that can be a pretty, first of all, it's a pretty heady thing. And it's also, that's a big responsibility. Um, So you're surrounded by people who are, are good at what they do. They're really smart. They're super, super, super curious. I mean, you can't be a journalist if you're not, if you don't have a curious mind. Um, And then they also really believe that, that what they're doing is important, which makes it really hard to see that journalists come in like, at the bottom of lists of people that who are respected in the world. Um, but you know, there, there is a great responsibility to making sure that people are informed about, about their world. So when you are surrounded by all people who believe in all those things, it's, um, it's both heartening and extraordinarily intimidating. Um, because when I mean, you, you don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room, right? I mean, the old joke is that then you're in the wrong room. Uh, but not being the smartest person in the room can also be, then be very intimidating, uh, even, even when you're really, really, really good at what you do. And people tell you that you're really good at what you do. Um, but then I think what that also feeds into, potentially, is... When you are with people who are at the top of their game, you can you can either call it hitting a stride or you get complacent and you get lazy and you start just kind of doing things the same way all the time. And then breaking out of those patterns becomes really difficult and you see people get into those patterns and then you see yourself get into those patterns and depending on the organization, maybe you're in an organization that fosters um, really trying to break out of those patterns. I was in an organization that paid lip service to wanting to get out of those patterns. But then when you pushed the envelope, to use another cliche, uh, it, <laughs> it was not appreciated. Um, so for me, getting back to your question, you know, I think, I think I got bored. I got bored with what I was doing, even though I was in my dream job at the shop that I had always wanted to be in. This was the job I had craved and I got it and I got it at a very early age. I was 32 when I started working there and I never, I I really thought I would die at the microphone at Marketplace. I thought, you know, that I would be there until I was however old and I would take that one last breath and say, and now the news and croak. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I wanted to happen. Um, But somewhere along the way there, not only did I become disenchanted with my workplace, but I got bored. And when you're at the top of your game you don't want to be bored. (laughs) Um, 
And so for me, as I said, I, you know, I was, I was surrounded by a lot of people who, and I would, I would never say that all of them were complacent, but I think, especially when you're on a hit show, that it's very easy to just keep doing the same thing day in and day out and tell yourself that you're doing stuff differently, but you never really do. And that's when it becomes time to go. But a lot of people don't. Did I answer your question? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I want to talk about the leap without a plan B. And what I want to ask you about is how people psychologically navigate periods of radical change and uncertainty and how you did in your own life. Because Uh I think that to me, when I look at it, it's the unknown and the uncertainty and the fact that it's all unwritten um, and unpredictable that causes people when they get to that edge instead of leaping to step right back. Right. Yeah. And for good reason. Um, you know, I, th- I think the first thing that you have to address when you, when you talk about something like this, because it's the first thing that enters people's minds. Um, and it just happens to be <laughs> the, the subject that I discussed on air for six straight years, uh, is money. And the reason people don't take these kinds of risks is because of money. They are so tied into um, a mortgage. They probably have children. They have a family to support. They have cars. They have, you know, a retirement plan. Uh, They have a vision of the future that is set. And most people have trouble saving money at all, uh, much less thinking about the idea of, you know, jumping off a cliff and leaving their career without knowing how they're going to pay the mortgage. (laughs) Uh, And I would first and foremost say that you do not do this if you don't know how you're going to pay the mortgage. You know, you, you cannot simply walk away from something and have no idea how you're going to keep shelter over your head. And I talked to, I interviewed 78, 79 people for the book that I wrote, all people who had also uh, leaped without knowing what they wanted to do next, leaped from, leapt from their careers without a plan B. And the vast majority of them, I would say 85%, 90%, did have some sort of safety net, which is why we actually, the, the book was originally called um, Leap Without a Net. And we decided that that was really bad advice. So it just be, it became a leap. Uh, you cannot you cannot do something like this and just go into it blindly. Um, that's not smart. It is it's not fair to the people who are relying on you. Whatever that reliance might look like, whether it's your immediate family or whether it's a brother who's living with you or an aunt who you help pay her mortgage or you know what whatever it is. So, uh, the money issue does have to be dealt with. Um, but what I argue in the book is that what most people are unwilling to do is take a really, really, really hard look at where the money is going now. And can you downsize your home? Can you live with one car? Can you, you know, rethink 
how you're setting aside money for your kid's college. Can they take out some loans? You know, and, and, and I'm not advocating any of this. But what most people are unwilling to do is even take a look at what the situation is and how they might be able to get through a period of time where they give themselves you know, that, that time to really think about what they want to do with their lives. Because that's, that's what this is about. This is about figuring out at a certain point in your life where you don't know what's happening or, or you, you don't have that feeling of satisfaction anymore, figuring out what might bring that to you. And that takes time. You cannot do that while you're in a job. You simply can't do it. You don't have the headspace for it. Um, so with all that said, I also have to acknowledge that this is all, this whole notion comes from an idea, comes from a place of at least some element of privilege. You know, if you are, if you are a family of four living on the median income in America of what is it now? fifty-two, fifty-three $53,000 a year. You can't do this. You can't walk away from your job, period. You can't do it. And I'm not arguing that you can. Um, and I, you know, my publisher never wants me to say that because, you know, then, then that's a bunch of people who aren't going to buy the book, whatever. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there, there, there are middle-class Americans who I would argue are pursuing a notion of career success of what their life is supposed to look like. You know, with the house and the picket fence and this and that and vacations and all that. Um, and, you know, retiring on the golf course that has been proscribed for them as a, their life and what it is supposed to be. But why don't you take a second look at that? Why are you living that life? Is it because you want to or is it because it's what your life is supposed to look like? And what if you stepped away from that? Yes, it would be hard to explain to people. People look at you like you have, you have two heads sometimes. Um, but why are you living your life for other people? It's very hard to stop worrying about what other people think of you. And that's, you know, that's another thing that keeps a lot of people from doing, from stepping off that cliff. Um, but to bring this all back around to the money question, when you start really taking a look at what your life is supposed to be and, 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 and why you're making the decisions that you're, that you're making. If you step back a minute, maybe some of those decisions can be adjusted to make it possible for you to step off the cliff and take some time to figure out what you really want. Right. Okay. So that's money. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, that, that people, people back off from that cliff because they cannot imagine who they are without having what they do, right? Mm-hmm. So we identify ourselves so much with, with our careers, you know? First thing, when you go to a party, what's the first thing you ask people? What do you do? I'm asking you. Right, exactly. What do you do? I hate that question. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I don't ask it anymore. I ask anything but that question. I will even explain to someone, I'm sorry, I'm not going to ask you what you do because I don't want to know that right away. <laughs> I, want to know, I want to know all the other inter- interesting things about you first. Yeah. Um, but it is the question that we're faced with, not only at parties, but everywhere. What do you do? And that, by the way, is unique to America. There are places in Europe where it is rude to ask people what they do for a living. Um, 
So that's, you know, that's another thing that keeps us from imagining what else there might be because we are so tied into who we are (laughs) at the office. Even if you're a mom, even if you're a dad, you are still, you're, you're still identified in large part um, by what you do on a daily basis. So it's a psychological hurdle that is really, really tough, tough to get through. And it keeps people from, from taking a step off that cliff. Um, so it's money. It's, it's that, that whole notion of identity, who you are as a person. Um, and you know, then, uh, I mean, there, there's so, there's so many other psychological issues that are wrapped up in all of it. Um, and, and a lot of it comes from external sources, you know, I mean, I, I don't know a single person who really doesn't give a shit what everybody else thinks about them. <laughs> those people, those people are really rare. Um, I've never sociopaths. been, they're, they're probably insane. sociopath. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of it is we, we don't step off that cliff because we look around and we're like, what are people going to think of me? They're going to think I'm a deadbeat because I'm leaving my job. They're going to think I'm Looney Tunes <laughs> because I'm leaving my paycheck. Um, and it's really, really hard to get through all those self-doubting questions that you ask yourself about money, about identity, about what are other people going to think of me? Um, so it's a struggle and, and it's hard. It's really hard for me to explain how I got through that because it's so personal. And I think it's so individual to each of us, how we get through those periods of time. Um, you know, getting through uncertainty is, it's just, it's, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. that only you can go through. And I can tell you what it was like for me, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the same for you, which is why I talk, tried to talk to a lot of other people for the book. You know, it, it's interesting. You brought up the identity piece because that was going to be my second to last question was um, you know, navigating in our lives the loss of identity that occurs when something so drastic changes in our lives. Um, it, yeah. It's you know, something that I, I honestly have wrestled with tremendously because I've seen sort of epic highs and epic lows of, of what I've gotten to do, you know, going from national media attention and uh, a best-selling self-published book to wondering if we were going to be out of business and then, you know, getting a book deal with uh, a publisher six months later. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think that the bigger challenge for me, at least, and the, the lesson that I've been trying to teach myself day in and day out is that I am not defined by any of these things. Uh, yes, and I'm very curious how, after such a lengthy career and reaching the heights of your career, um, you've navigated this period in which your your identity uh, has become uncoupled from who you are. Yeah, boy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how to tackle that one? Um, like I said, I mean, it's uh, I, I can tell you I can tell you what it's been like for me, but I'm also in a bit of a unique situation, uh, which made it which made it hard for me to give advice in the book, yeah. which you're supposed to do with, you know, a how-to book, which it isn't really. <laughs> it was supposed to be, but I refused to do that because, I, again, I think that, I think, first of all, we all have to get through it ourselves. That's part of the job. It's part of what makes it hard. And second, we're all different people. You know, that, I mean, 
God, if, if the self-help books worked, we wouldn't have so many of them. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, for me, and the, the reason I think that I'm a bit of an outlier and it's hard for me to, uh, to tell people how it's going to work for them is because for me, I also, I had an element of fame on top of just career identity. So for me, I had this incredibly cool job and a lot of people knew who I was. Like I said, I mean, I have literally, I was in Nordstrom a couple of years ago and I was talking to the woman who was ringing up whatever I was buying. And she's, she literally looked at me and she said, um, are you Tess Bigland? And I had not given her my credit card yet. <laughs> so that, you know, that's, that's an ego trip. And not every career path has that and has that kind of opportunity. So for me, my career was even doubly tied up with my identity or my, my identity was even doubly tied up with my, with my career because not only was that how I identified myself, but that's how a lot of people identified me. Um, so when I no longer had that, when I left, I mean, I worried about everything from, I mean, like I was worried about, was I going to lose a bunch of Twitter followers? <laughs> because I wasn't, the way I put it is that I wasn't Marketplace's Tess Vigland anymore. I was just Tess Vigland and I had no idea who she was or if she was cool or if people would want to talk to her or read her tweets or be friends with her on Facebook. You know, I mean, I worried about that little stuff and I know you're not supposed to and you're not supposed to worry about your followers and your friends and, and your audience numbers and, and all that. But I did. I'm human. You know, when you have your ego being fed on a regular basis and then you voluntarily walk away from that, you wonder if anyone's going to follow you. Um, so for me, it was really, it was like uh, I had to figure out why I was special anymore. Because the way I thought of it was that the only thing that made me special was that I was, I was this you know, a high flutin journalist on the radio, no less. Yes, I wasn't on TV, but I was still on the radio at a really highly respected show with a really big audience. Um, and I thought that that's what made me cool, what made me worth listening to. And the biggest part of my process over the last three years has been getting over that. Um, now people ask me how I got over it, but what I have to say is that I didn't fully leave. Um, I kept going back as a backup host for weekend, all things considered. I was on the air quite a bit. I was still doing incredibly cool interviews with celebrities and book authors and people, people know and so I, you know, I would post those on Facebook and everybody would get really excited and be like, I can't wait to hear you on air again. So I didn't, re I didn't fully leave the radio. 
until about six months ago. So, um, you know, I think I still had to deal, you know, in those down periods with not having on air time, but I was still, you know, I was writing for the New York times and I was writing for the guardian and I, you know, I had a public presence still, I guess is, I, I guess that that's, that's the way to put it now that I'm kind of talking through it. You know, I still had a public presence and that was feeding, you know, that identity issue that I had. And then of course, I mean, I gave the speech and that speech went viral. So then I had that and, you know, then I had the book and so I had that as an identity. Um, and I kept kind of taking all these things on, but I never really lost the radio journalist identity that was such a big part of me. Um, now, yes, I was still doing, I was still doing work on myself, on my, on my psyche to convince myself that there was something worthwhile about me other than just that I was on a radio show. (laughs) Um, and you know, that, that's super personal and I go into some of it in the book. Um, but you know, some of it is nobody's business. Um, but I will say that the last six months or so has been a challenge. Now, yes, I'm doing cool stuff because I moved abroad and people are fascinated by that. So, um, I don't think I've, I mean, I haven't lost a bunch of Facebook friends or Twitter followers, but and I, I really, really have to stop even paying attention. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been, it's been weird not having any sort of radio presence. And I've only done one article in the last six months or so. So, you know, it's been a lot of, of doing my own thing and getting comfortable with just doing my own thing. And I'm fortunate that um, I have the financial wherewithal right now to kind of do whatever I want to do, go wherever I want to go, and pursue things that, uh, that I have not done before. I've been teaching myself photography for the last two years. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't pretend to say that I am fully confident in just who I am outside of what I do for a living. I'm getting there. It's a very, very slow process and you have to get used to just not knowing and waking up every day and going, okay, what does today mean for me? And that's not, that's a, that's not a, that's not always a fun place to be in. And some people just don't want to go there and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would say that if you do have, have that in you somewhere where you wonder what else there is, um, and you want to take some time to figure that out, that it's worth it. It's worth going through that. You know, I just, what I've, what I keep reminding myself of for the last three years is that we get one shot at this and it's so corny, but don't, don't live your life in a way that you're doing it for, for other people or because it's something that you're supposed to do because it's not worth it. And at the end of the day and at the end of your life, you know, you got to look back on it and say, did I, did I, did I really follow those gut instincts that I had? 
And that's one thing that I certainly have learned to do. You know, I followed my gut instinct when I left. I followed my gut instinct when I said yes to writing a book. I followed my gut instinct to leave the country, to go to a place where I knew not a soul. Um, and there's value there. I, it's hard to put, it's hard to, to explain that value, but I think there's value there. So I have one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. I think, I think it is unmistakable when you see someone just putting, this, putting themselves out there just going for it because so many people don't. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be an unmistakable creative, but the way you recognize those people is that they are jumping on what they want to jump on. They're just doing it no matter what, no matter if it looks batshit bonkers, no matter if it looks like it's going to hurt no matter if it really screams failure. They, they just put it out there. And I like to think of myself now as among them. I don't think I was before I left my job. I think I've become one over the last three years just by, again, following that gut instinct and doing the things that I am not supposed to do, um, doing the things that go against convention. And that's where, you know, you, you brought up at the very beginning, our mutual friend, Chris Gillibo, and, you know, his first book was the art of nonconformity. And it's that whole idea of being able to live the unconventional life. And it is difficult. It's not easy. Um, but when you see people doing that, it is unmistakable. There, there is no like, are they doing that or not? They are totally doing it. And um, so, you know, I think when you see people going for it and really trying not to give a hoot about what anybody else thinks, that is unmistakable. Awesome. Uh, well, this has been just incredible, uh, as I expected it would be. Oh, thank you, Srini. Uh, I think you're going to be a real big hit with our listeners. And uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share uh, your story and your insights with our listeners. It's just been absolutely a pleasure. And I feel like I just yammered on. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, hope, I hope it inspires some people to, to take that leap um, that they've been thinking about for a while because... I, you know, I, I'm not that rah, rah person who says, Oh, you can do it. Everybody can do it. But, but I do think that there is something in all of us that gets us through this and you just have to have the confidence that you will get through this kind of life change. Um, cause I did it. Awesome. You can do it. Well, uh, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that next week on the unmistakable creative. I would posit that the seeds are always planted. Uh-huh. Uh, 
but what needs to happen is they need to be nurtured. And I think a, a more common occurrence is the seed is planted, but it's not given the time and space and self-reflection and care to allow it to grow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that seed was planted. I was lucky enough to notice it and go, aha. Um, but, you know, as part of that, I also kind of, I would say, did some of the work around, got clear on who I was, got clear on what my strengths were, got clear on what I needed to do to bring that to fruition and did the hard work that got it along there. And so I, my my guess is that for most of us and probably almost all of your audience listening into this show in particular, seeds have been planted. Uh, it's a question of have you had a chance to reflect on them? Have you had a chance to make a choice, be brave enough to say yes to some and no to others? Have you had a chance to do the work so that you move from, you know, competent incompe- uh, co- conscious incompetence, where when you start you go, wow, I'm really, I really notice how bad I am at this, to get better at it so you become consciously competent and then move to mastery. All of those things that allow us to get to the top of something and to evolve and to, to find those opportunities. Michael Bungay-Sanya joins us to talk about how we say less, ask more, and change the way we lead forever. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.